Gateway. My name is Ed. If you're visiting with us, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to the second Sunday in Lent. And on your way in, you were given a purple ribbon. Purple is traditionally the color that represents Lent in part because purple represents royalty. So we've given this to you as a gimmick. Find somewhere, but it's a good gimmick. Find somewhere appropriate to tie it this week to remind you. And this has been really good for me this week. Every time I bring out my keys, I tell myself, Jesus is my king. Uh, We're working our way through this season of Lent through the book of Luke. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to open your Bible. You have one. To the uh, first chapter of Luke. Last week, we introduced this new series of conversations that will take us through the Lenten season, and we're walking through the New Testament book of Luke. We are examining the life of Jesus, and last week, we identified Luke's purpose in writing, and he stated it plainly in verse 4 of chapter 1. So look at verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And we talked last week about how important it is to be convinced and to do the work of convincing others of the truth surrounding Jesus' ministry. Hopefully, we'll spend our time over the next six weeks getting increasingly convinced. Now, if you weren't here last week, you also mentioned uh, Jordan's introduction to his alternative title for the series. Instead of calling it Luke, Jordan wants to call it Luke at this. Uh, After we spent some time moaning about that last week, well, I got an email from someone that I thought you should hear. They said, I'm enjoying the Luke at this series. If you're still trying to nail down titles for individual sermons on the book of Luke, may I suggest for Good Friday, Luke what you made me do, parentheses, Swifties will love that. Uh, How about the woman at the well, looking for love in all the wrong places, and then Easter, that's the way, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I look it, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, I can see that some of you are beginning to cogitate yourself. Stop it. I don't need any more. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much. We do not believe we are here by accident. We believe, Lord, that you have drawn us. We, we pray that you would speak. Your servants are listening. Uh, please uh, cleanse and clear our ears and our hearts. Cleanse my mouth. Forgive me of my sin. I pray, Lord, that what is of you will stick to our minds and our hearts and our wills this morning, and what is not of you will burn away. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look primarily at two things today. Now, the first one, we're, it's the undercurrent of everything we're going to do for the next six weeks, but the first one is we worship Jesus. That's what we do as Christians. So does that still hold up in 2024? And if so, why do we think that still holds up? The second thing we're going to do at the very end today, we're going to, we're going to toss to uh, the idea of unanswered prayer. We'll dig into one passage in particular, and we're going to speak uh, to, the, to the, what do we do with this, these unanswered prayers? For our text this morning, we're walking through chapter 1, 2, 3, and the very first part of chapter 4. Now, most commentators will see chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 52, as a longer introduction to the rest of the book. So I want you to thumb through that section right now. I hope many of you read this this week. But chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 52, just thumb through, note note the headings, skim, 
Think of this like the first few scenes of a great movie. The director is introducing us to the main character and to a key supporting character. And as we read through this section, and, and you've, you've noticed this if you've read this before, you, you can't help but be struck by the incredible symmetry and in how God works in the character of these li- uh, uh, in the lives in these characters. L- l- listen to this. Luke knew, by the way, Luke knew exactly how to use this symmetry to its full effect. Can you see it? Here's what I mean. Look at the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. Notice it was the same angel Gabriel who appeared to both sets of parents. Both parents were troubled by the angel's visit. Both were told not to be afraid. Both were told of the future birth of a son. Both births were associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. And in both passages, the angel named the child. In both incidences, the angel stated that the son would be great. In both, the the son's future roles in God's plans were announced. And in both, they were then told of the birth, circumcision, and the official naming. And notice that this whole introductory section, 1-5 through 2-52, it begins and ends in the temple, just like a bookend. That's so cool, and it shows that Luke is a master storyteller. Now, the first thing that happens in this section, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, is the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. Put your finger there. We're going to come back to this at the end. This is the passage we're going to dig into just a little bit. And we'll talk about unanswered prayer. Right after that incident, the birth of Jesus is foretold. John the Baptist and then Jesus, beginning in verse 26. When Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, and I want you to notice something important here. Throughout all of these stories, Luke can't help but comment on the piety of the characters. Zechariah and Elizabeth, according to verse 6, were upright in the sight of God, observing all commands. You see that? And then according to verse 28, Mary was, quote, highly favored by God. Don't snooze on this. Here's what I want us to see. Jesus will make it it clear throughout his ministry that great piety does not earn us anything. He came for the least, the last, and the lost, not the most pious. Piety is not the point. Our faith is not about being good, but. Once a person's heart is genuinely captured by God, they always want to know what God wants. They they always want to know how to please God. Once a person has a relationship with God, they always want to represent him well. This is just part of what happens when God's spirit takes up residence in our lives. So Luke wants his original readers and we to be inspired. We we are inspired by these examples, and and we will want to be those kinds of people as well if we have a connection with God, and Luke wants to reinforce that. But there's no legalism here. There's no behavior here. Luke isn't saying, God bless them because of their goodness. Luke knows that people come to salvation by God's grace through faith. But real faith will always move a person to live for the glory of God. If there's no movement toward God over the long term in a person's life, then there's no connection to God. Real faith will always move a person to want to live for the glory of God. That's why Luke adds these descriptions. Elizabeth is not being rewarded with a child in her old age because she's been good, nor is Mary. Mary found favor with God, and the very definition of favor is it's a gift. It's not earned. Back to her story. 
after Mary received the thrilling, unsettling, and confusing news that she would have this extraordinary child, she was told that her much older relative, Elizabeth, who had been barren, was also pregnant. So Mary went to visit Elizabeth. And and in verses 39 through 45, we find out the sort of detail that a mother would never forget. By the way, this is one of the reasons I think Mary was one of Luke's sources, the way this part of the story unfolds. We find out that when Mary walked in the room, Elizabeth's baby leapt in her womb. Imagine now, Mary is at this point 13, 14, 15-year-old girl. This is when uh, women in this day and age got pregnant, and this is probably 4 BC, give or take, two or three years. How is she supposed to process this? All of these strange things that are happening, what does she make of all of this? Luke then records a song that Mary wrote, and I wonder if she recited this song to, to Luke, did someone she knew learn the song and, and recite it to Luke? After this, beginning in verse 57, Luke turns his attention again to John, back to John now, and he records his birth. Following that, he describes John's naming ceremony and circumcision. And after that, Luke recorded yet another song. Zechariah, John's father, sang a song of praise. And I want us to see something about both of these hymns, something that that should be a reminder to all of us, Gateway, Mary's song begins, look, in verse 46, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, etc. Then Zechariah sang, beginning in verse 67, see this? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people, etc. And and this same thing, look back at Elizabeth, back in verse 25 of chapter 1. See her response. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In each case, their hearts were moved in praise of God. In other words, they were preoccupied with the blessor, not the blessing. So often in my life, when good things happen, I'm swallowed up in the good thing instead of the good giver of the good thing. In each of their cases, their minds were filled with delight in the good giver. After Zechariah's song, Luke gave his account of the birth of Jesus. And we we know this story. We hear the familiar ring of the manger and then the angels and the shepherds. And this is followed by an account of Jesus being presented in the temple and his circumcision. And this would have happened about eight days. Uh, from the very beginning of the story. And remember, at this point, we're still being introduced to the main characters. This is kind of the, a longer introduction to the whole book. But from the very beginning, we see that everywhere Jesus goes, everywhere Jesus goes, there's this kind of emotional and spiritual reverberation. People who have spiritual sensitivity just seem to be moved by him. It's as if there's some kind of energy coming off of this child. And even people who may not have had any spiritual sensitivity. You know, take the shepherds. We don't know anything about them, but but, but they they weren't typically very pious people. Yet they too were caught up in this swell around this child, around Jesus. Jesus is an epic environment-altering event wherever he goes, right? Of course, Luke is just laying the groundwork. Eventually, he's going to convince us that Jesus is a universe-altering event, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
So it reinforced this idea of Jesus as an epic, environment-altering event. Look at the next episode. While Jesus was being presented at the temple, there was this old prophet and this older prophetess that randomly came up to the family and made crazy prophetic announcements over this child. It's just, it's incredible. This stuff keeps happening. Speaking of incredible, you may know this, but much has been written about what to make of the birth of Jesus and the the whole story, the, the Jesus birth stories. Among those who don't really take it very seriously, they will point to the differences between Matthew's account and Luke's account as a reason to disregard both accounts. For instance, the genealogies are different. Luke doesn't mention the wise men. Luke doesn't mention the massacre of innocent children. Luke doesn't mention the family hiding out in Egypt. Matthew doesn't mention Zechariah and Elizabeth or the census or the shepherds. Matthew doesn't mention Jesus' circumcision or, or Simeon or Anna, that prophetess. Some find the differences so hard to explain that they assume we shouldn't really take either account seriously. They cancel one another out. But this kind of criticism ignores the way genuine eyewitnesses tell stories. Think of the way different people in your family tell a story. They will recall different details from one another, not contradictory details, just different details. This is exactly the way true stories are told. Rob Showers is one of our elders, and Rob is a lawyer, and Rob has tried many cases over the years in court. Rob has told me on more than once that when, listen to this, when eyewitness stories are too similar, uh, you suspect that they're lying. You suspect that they're rehearsed when they're too similar. The criticisms of the critics also ignores the similarities in the birth accounts, and these similarities come with the most important details, and this is what we would expect of true stories. They have a common reference to Jesus' birth during the reign of Herod. Both recall Mary and Joseph's engagement. Both recall Mary being a virgin. Both recall Joseph being of Davidic descent and Jesus therefore being of Davidic descent. Both talk of the conception as the work of the Holy Spirit. Both discuss the angel giving the the name of the child and the angel stating that Jesus would be a savior. Both acknowledge that Jesus was born after Mary came to live with Joseph and both say Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that he was raised in Nazareth. And by the way, both Bethlehem and Nazareth are real towns that still exist in Israel today. You've heard this kind of criticism. And look, you may have trouble believing this story yourself. That's understandable. But I don't want you to get confused about one thing. And throughout our, the next six weeks, do not, confuse, do not be confused about this. Luke is not writing a fantasy novel. Luke may be deluded. He may be lying. But he's not creating myth. He does not believe he's transmitting a myth. It may be false, but it's not a myth. Let me read you how one scholar put this. And I've got this on the screen for you. I want you to see this. If you're at home, sorry for this long quote, but this is a good one. Thus, it is evident that Luke was writing Theophilus an historical account. 
Luke 1, 5 and following is not written in the literary genre of myth. There is no once upon a time, but rather in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Readers may deny the historicity of the events Luke described, but they cannot deny that he was asserting that these events were part of universal history. To describe them as myth is to confuse a critical evaluation of an historical account, which takes place at a specific time in history, that a specific place, involves specific people, concerns the birth of an historical person, etc. They confuse that with a literary genre called myth. What we have in one Luke 1, 5 and following is not the literary form one finds in the ancient myth. Okay. But that still leaves us with the main problem with this story, doesn't it? How in the, what, what, what do we make of a virgin birth? Uh, there's too much to say here for this conversation, but let me just offer a quick word. And the reason I'm touching on this at all is I'm offering this in light of Luke's concern that we might know with certainty the things that we have been taught. Now, hardly anyone would suggest that Luke made the virgin birth idea just up out of thin air. But many attempts have been made to explain the whole virgin birth story that it was just fantastical material borrowed from pagan sources. You've heard this before. And it's true. There are other figures in the ancient world who have claims of a virgin birth. But listen to this. Fewer and fewer critics take that explanation seriously. Again, even the critics don't take that explanation seriously anymore. In fact, some of the more extensive books from the past that that made this point, they've been thoroughly debunked by other critics, not by believers. The problem for them is that there are simply no parallels. There are no clear parallels between the pagan examples and Luke's account. Now, there are many weird birth stories from the ancient world, but there aren't as many actual virgin birth stories as you were led to believe by some article you read when you were in college. And and the other virgin birth stories are so different from this account. As we've said repeatedly, Luke very intentionally roots his story in an historical time and place in a way that's just unparalleled. That doesn't by any means prove that this story is true. But the idea that Luke stole this story from other ancient myths is, is just not a, it's not a believable explanation. When you read this, easy to disbelieve. I've never seen anything like that. But you have to ask yourself, okay, where might this story have come from? And other pagan sources is not, is not a great explanation. So other attempts have been Uh, made to explain the virgin birth tradition coming from Jewish myths. The idea is that Luke got this notion from older and contemporary Jewish, Jewish myths about a virgin birth or about the virgin birth of the Messiah. Listen to this. This is important for those of you who track with this story. There's no evidence anywhere, no evidence of of a, a Jewish expectation that the Messiah would be born a virgin. That may surprise you, so I'm going to repeat that. There's no evidence of the Jewish expectation that the Messiah would be born a virgin. Even that famous prophecy from Isaiah 7, and some of you may be thinking of this. You remember this one? 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And read the, we read that almost every Christmas from, from the book of Isaiah. But you need to know that the word translated virgin there can also mean young woman. And until the birth of Jesus, all known Jewish sources take it to mean young woman. There simply was no Jewish expectation about the Messiah or anyone else being born of a virgin. Suffice to say, I don't think there's a great alternate explanation. I believe this story as it is quite literally written. I don't think there's a the better way to read it. You, you may not believe that, but don't be fooled into thinking that Luke didn't believe it. Nor was he attempting to do anything other than tell us quite literally what he had heard actually happen from the people that it had happened to. Okay. After the birth stories, we read the only account from all of the Gospels about Jesus' childhood. He was 12 years old and his family had re returned to Jerusalem for the great Passover event. And after that whole celebration, Jesus' family... Uh, left to return back to Galilee, and Jesus was left behind accidentally in Jerusalem. But this was, this was not Home Alone 3. Uh, he was not a scared boy pining for his parents. Jesus spent his time in the temple discussing the Torah with the teachers of the law who were amazed at this 12-year-old boy. Now, while that, uh, well, that episode ends, and, and that ends what most consider to be this, this long, elaborate introduction to the rest of the story. And, and then we jump into the story proper. It begins in chapter 3 with the preaching of John the Baptist. That's right. The real meat of the Jesus story begins with the preaching of John the Baptist. And this is followed by a remarkable account of Jesus being baptized by John. And during this baptism, there's another one of those incredible events that just surround the life of Jesus. A dove descends on him and a voice says, you are my son whom I love, in you I am well pleased. That's chapter 3, verse 22. At that point, at that point, pause for dramatic effect, music in the background swells, and Jesus' genealogy is presented by Luke. Three and a half chapters in, Luke gives Jesus his genealogy. This is so clever. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that this, uh, if you're as old as me, you, you may have noticed this is a different thing. This is, this is often happening now in newer television shows. Uh, you never used to see this, but sometimes a television show will start, boom, the, the action right in, and you'll see several scenes and, or the characters introduced or, or, you know, you're into the story, and then all of a sudden... The, the, the title of the show comes up, 10 or 15 minutes in. This is exactly what Luke has done here. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, this is who we're talking about. This is who this guy is, and this is where he comes from. And by the way, this genealogy may be different from Matthew's, possibly because it traces the genealogy through Mary and not through Joseph. So after the genealogy, in chapter 4, the full emphasis shifts to our main character, to Jesus. And Jesus is led into the desert where he is confronted by his eternal enemy, Satan. And from the very beginning of his ministry, we learn that Jesus is not exactly like us. He does not succumb to temptation. 
Chapter four, verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And now cue the credits and the end music, end scene, epic foreshadowing, and we can't wait for what's next for this opportune time because we know something's coming. Well, we're mostly done this morning with our survey, but before we end this, I want us to do one quick final thing, and I want you to hold on to this one. Uh, Let's go back to where we stuck our finger earlier. Let's go back to the beginning. And the, the, look at the foretelling of the birth of John. And I want us to talk about this business of unanswered prayer for a minute. Now, the episode beginning in 1-5, this acts almost like a prequel to the, the rest of the story. This is about John the Baptist. He's the prequel. And verse 5, notice, chapter 1, verse 5, tells us that Zechariah was of the priestly division of Abijah. Let me, a little explanation of what's going on here. The temple serving company, the people that would come in regularly and serve at the temple all year year long, this this always happened, they kept the candles burning, and they went in and out of the holy place in the temple, and they said prayers for the nation. The temple serving company was, you know, all the priests divided into 24 different divisions, and each division provided for the needs of the temple service for a week at a time, so twice a year, each division. So it's very likely that a single priest might serve in that capacity once in his lifetime. This was not a small thing. This was a big, giant deal. So Zechariah would have felt a clear sense that he was not there by accident. He was chosen by Lot. Zechariah was an old man, had waited much of his life for this event, and And he gets to go serve at temple. Now I want you to look at verse 13. And I want you to, if you're this kind of person, do this. If you're not this kind of person, do it anyway. I want you to underline this or draw a little note beside it or do whatever you need to do to highlight this. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Here's the thing. Look. The priest was on duty in the temple. He was was there, I want to remind you, to offer prayers for the nation. They were praying for Israel's deliverance and for the great deliverer to come. And that prayer was pressing on the hearts of any priest that found himself in that place. Because they they were occupied by the most oppressive force in human history, the Roman Empire. That was their job. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son... And you are to call him John. Here's the thing. Zechariah had stopped praying for that long ago. Elizabeth was an old woman. Zechariah was an old man. That prayer had died on the vine many years ago. They had spent years trying to understand God's will in that particular thing and to accept God's will. But this is the last thing I want us to remember today. God does not forget our prayers, even when we do. Let's pray. Lord, there are multiples of unanswered prayers in each seat this morning. We praise you that 
Those prayers are hidden, protected, guarded in your breast. And you are attending. You're paying attention. You're moving. Even when we've forgotten, we are also reminded this morning, Jesus, of just... I. Lord, I was a little overwhelmed this week in, in reading the whole story all together repeatedly. Just how remarkable. You, everywhere you went, just stuff happened. Hearts were, hearts were frozen. Hearts were hardened. Or hearts were enlivened and set free. People were speaking and doing strange things because you were the, the presence of the future. You were the, you were the inbreaking of heaven. You were the, the coming of the kingdom of God. So this morning, God, we, we take a few moments. We lay aside our to-do list and everything that worries us. Father, we lay aside our grief. We lay aside our disappointment. Today I pray, Lord, that it would be swallowed up in acknowledgement and praise. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.